Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 105, released on February 13th, 2019. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. Today we are going to talk about the copyright directive, yes again, about the latest developments in the mobility space, about the increase in VC funding and its meaning, about a life without the tech giants, and much more. We also have a pre-recorded interview with Claire Novorol, uh, the co-founder and the chief medical officer at Ada Health, a startup that applies AI to primary care. So I'm your host, Andre Degeler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, uh, joined today as usual by our research lead, Natalie Novik, located in Edinburgh. Uh, hi, Natalie. How is it going? Hi, Andre. I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, I'm great as well. I really missed you uh, last time, even though you were uh, there for us remotely to talk about events and recommendations. Now, finally, I can uh, give you back the right and the privilege to talk about the biggest deal of the last week. Sure. So the biggest deal of last week went to Oak North, and we learned that SoftBank's Vision Fund will lead a new investment worth $440 million in the British online banking startup. SoftBank was joined in the deal by Claremont. So this gives the company a new valuation of nearly 2.8 billion US dollars. And it means that Oak North is the UK's most valuable private fintech. The firm plans to use this new investment to expand to the United States. It's also interesting because uh, last year it was reported by the Times of London that Oak North and Revolut were both in talks with SoftBank. So now that we've learned that Oak North has received funding from SoftBank, let's wait and see if there'll be another announcement to come, possibly in Revolut. Oh, that's pretty interesting. wonder what comes first, uh, uh, Brexit or uh, this announcement. Yeah, or if there's no announcement at all. That would be also very interesting, I think. Yeah, but also sometimes it feels like every more or less uh, large uh, company has been at some point in talks with SoftBank one way or the other. Yeah, very true. Right, so let's get towards the uh, stories and interviews of the week. And as I said before, I'm going to talk at length again about the copyright directive. And I have done so a few times on this podcast already, but it is an important topic, uh, in my opinion. And there have been quite some developments uh, lately. So here we are again. Now, a quick context uh, in case you missed the whole thing. Uh, the copyright directive is a document uh, that is supposed to bring the copyright related regulations in the European Union up to speed with the technical developments that we have seen over the past years. Sounds good, generally. Well, and however, there are uh, two problems with uh, this document, and these problems are called Article 11 and Article 13. Uh, let's talk about both of them. Uh, Article 11, also known as link tax or snippet tax, it would allow publishers and papers to demand paid licenses when commercial platforms link to their stories and provide snippets of content. So obviously, this aimed first of all at aggregators like Google News and uh, many others, and it also specifically exempts private nor non-commercial sharing. So if you share a snippet of a uh, story from a newspaper on your Twitter account, that's still going to be for free. So it's not trying to take this from you. The problem with this one, however, is that it won't really solve anything, as the practice shows. Just recently, Google ran an interesting uh, experiment, sort of a campaign, I would say even, to show how Google News would look if it had to comply with Article 11 today. And basically, in that case, you would be looking at a bunch of links with no text whatsoever, just the names of publications in blue and... Uh, it doesn't look good at all, I have to say. Actually, I only learned about this experiment uh, when I went to Google News to uh, look for something and saw a bunch of links that looked that way and I thought that uh, something was wrong with my browser or with Google or with both. So I went on to look for the solution and learned about the experiment. So 
And also, uh, Google published the results of this experiment recently, and uh, it uh, showed that the traffic to the news publishers' websites went down by at least 45%. So it's not going to be good for anyone. Now, Article 13, and this one is uh, arguably a bigger pain in the back uh, for the Internet. Uh, it is often referred to as the upload filter and also, more jokingly, as the meme killer. Uh, the initial version of this article uh, from September, it required platforms to work proactively with copyright holders and stop users from uploading copyrighted content, hence the upload filter. That basically meant that the platforms would need to analyze and pre-moderate uploaded content, which means A, getting closer to full-blown censorship, and B, a significant burden uh, for smaller companies, which might just not be able to afford uh, installing this kind of thing. Later on, after September, the wording on this one was amended to a less intimidating version, but it was still not entirely clear uh, about uh, how uh, the whole thing is going to be implemented. So closer to today, uh, just two weeks ago, uh, I told you that uh, there was a very big chance of the directive being killed altogether because a few countries decided to vote against the current wording, which would supposedly uh, lead to the final vote not taking place before the next European Parliament elections. Well, that didn't happen, unfortunately, because within the next few days after that uh, podcast went out, uh, Germany and France uh, managed to find a compromise of sorts and agreed on a uh, version of Article 13 that could be even worse than the initial one. So they both are fine with it, but uh, I'm not really, honestly. And the key thing here is that it appears to require upload filters installed by, well, pretty much any platform that works with the user-generated content, unless it satisfies all three, not just one, of the following criteria. So criterion one is that this platform, to be exempt, it has to be available to the public for less than three years. Uh, criterion two is that annual turnover of the platform has to be below 10 million euros. And criterion three is that fewer than 5 million unique monthly visitors have to be coming to this platform. So there are a lot of uh, uh, platforms that are still kind of small, but old or in any other way, not really comply to this, uh, to this criteria. And, uh, this doesn't really look uh, good, uh, but uh, right now, uh, this week, the directive is going through the so-called trilogues. Uh, those are consultations and discussions between the European Council, uh, European Parliament and member states. In these uh, discussions, they uh, basically have to agree on the final version of the directive, which if agreed, will then move to the final vote by the European Parliament in March or April. And after that, there won't be a way back at all. So the trilogues in the European Parliament are going on uh, today as we speak, and they are expected to finish by the end of this week. And you can expect uh, us at you to cover uh, the results, uh, whatever happens at the end. In the meantime, it is uh, time for our pre-recorded interview of today. And this is a conversation that I recorded at uh, Slush 2018 in December with Claire Novarol, the co-founder and chief medical officer at Ada Health, a startup that applies AI to primary care. Let's check this one out. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degeler from Tech.eu recording at the Slush 2018 conference in uh, Helsinki. Uh, now I have a chance to catch up with uh, Claire Novarol, uh, the co-founder and chief medical officer of uh, Ada Health. Uh, hi Claire, great to have you here today. Can you please start with introducing yourself and telling a bit more what uh, Ada Health is? Uh, absolutely and um, great to meet you. Uh, so a little bit about Ada. Uh, it's an AI-powered personal health guide uh, that provides personalized symptom assessments and, and, and guidance to individuals um, around managing their health and navigating to appropriate care. Um, we've been building the underlying technology, the reasoning and the knowledge base for seven years now. Um, we uh, initially built a system to support doctors in diagnostic decision making um, and then expanded that uh, out to the individual, to the, the, the patient. Um, so we actually have um, uh, millions of uh, individuals now all around the world using ADA. Um, every three seconds, someone somewhere in the world completes a new ADA assessment. Um, 
Uh, and we're available in five languages now. So English, German, French, Spanish and Portuguese. Uh, and our team is headquartered in Berlin. We have 125 people now in the team with smaller offices in London and New York. Right. So when did you when did you launch Ada as a consumer product? Uh, so two years ago. Two years ago. Two years. And uh, so you yourself uh, is a, you you yourself are a trained uh, doctor and you trained in the UK. So why did you decide to move to Germany to uh, start the company? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So I did train um, as a doctor in the UK. I worked in the British National Health Service as a hospital doctor for a number of years. Um, I then did, uh, I took some time out for research. I did a PhD in, in Cambridge at the university and I got really um, inspired by the entrepreneurs and spin-outs in Cambridge. Uh, there's a lot of startups there. Um, started going to a lot of events and startup weekends. Um, met, met a couple of engineers there, started working on my own um, startup idea Um, and then I, I spoke about that in Berlin and, and, and somebody then introduced me to Daniel and Martin who were working on something kind of similar to what I was working on um, but didn't have a doctor on their team. And, and, and I started um, advising, working with them and ultimately um, they, they'd really only just started sort of um, conceptualizing and prototyping their, their diagnostic decision support system for doctors and I joined as the, as the medical co-founder basically and that was um, uh, almost seven years ago now. And how big is the company now? Uh, so now we're 125 um, people spanning engineers, data scientists, mathematicians, um, doctors, epidemiologists, uh, business people, of course, um, and uh, across three offices so far. And uh, what is the business model? Currently, uh, as a consumer, as an individual, you can download the app um, and use it completely for free. Um, and actually, it'll always remain that the core symptom assessment is, is, is completely free to the end user. Um, and we monetize by partnering um, with stakeholders in the, in, the, in the health ecosystem. So in particular, health payers, so health insurers and public health um, systems uh, and, and, and health systems um, in, in general in the US as, as, as well as the UK, Germany. We have partnerships there and they basically pay um, for us to tailor the guidance to their network of providers and, and care options so that when you use ADA as a member of uh, that uh, health system or insurer, um, at the end of an assessment, we can guide you towards the appropriate clinicians or, or, or services within that network. Right. So for me as a consumer, what would be the principal difference between using ADA and uh, just going to Google and Googling my symptoms? Yeah, yeah. Great question. Uh, most people, I think these days, Google their symptoms. I work with a lot of GPs and they tell me they're surprised these days if somebody hasn't Googled their symptoms before going to see the GP. Um, but of course, you know, with Google, you can put one or a small number of keywords in. Um, and then the results that you see on the page are determined by search engine optimization. Um, it's, it's not at all personalized to you. It's usually the worst case scenario that comes up, you know, at the top of the page, uh, which can make people very unduly worried. Um, by contrast, Ada is a very simple to use, intuitive sort of app where you tell Ada what's, what's going on. And then it's like a conversation, you know, Ada basically asks you, um, for further details about those symptoms, um, relevant risk factors, additional symptoms, is a conversation in, in, in very understandable language. Um, and at the end, Ada provides not a diagnosis, but information about what might be going on. It's extremely personalized in that um, uh, every is a probabilistic system. So with every new piece of information, Ada is dynamically updating and thinking what might be going on here and what's the most useful question to ask next. Reasoning much like a doctor does, actually. Um, and then providing this information um, about what's roughly how likely different possibilities are uh, and what you might want to think about doing next. Um, it's much more balanced. Uh, it's not going to bring to the top of the list something that's very unlikely and very scary, which is very often what happens with when, when you're searching online. So it's, it's, um, it's more reliable and you can trust it more. And how much money have you raised uh, so far for the company? So we've actually raised around $70 million. Um, uh, and that's over a period of around seven years. So initially we, we were funded by private individuals for a number of years while we um, focused very much on sort of developing the technology. And then as we started to commercialize, we raised um, VC money. That's a lot of money though. So like what, uh, 
what do you need this uh, this much money for? Uh, so it's a mix of things. So it's, it's it's very much to build out a team of um, experts in medicine as well as um, AI, data science, of course, engineering, um, uh, to build what we are very confident is an the absolutely sort of best in class technology in this field. At the same time, you know, we're a global company. We have partnerships in many parts of the world. So building out a team that can localize, that can work with those partners, you know, it, 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 take, it takes a lot of um, resources. So uh, another question, where do you get all the data? So like on diseases and prob probable diagnosis and so on and so forth? Um, so actually our knowledge base is expert curated. So um, What this means is we, we pull in data from a number of sources, so published literature, um, uh, data, published data on prevalence and incidence of diseases in different parts of the world and in different demographics and so forth. Um, uh, and that's, that's pulled into the system in a variety of ways, but ultimately it's curated by experienced doctors. Um, and we build up this knowledge base, constantly refining it um, and testing against a bank of thousands and thousands of patient cases, reference cases. So cases where we know what the ultimate diagnosis was, the ultimate outcome, to constantly improve the system against these cases, both typical cases and less typical cases. Um, and then we have a suite of tools that are looking at the data, um, how the app is being used, the feedback we're getting from patients, from doctors, uh, when we can kind of close the loop to look at how it's performing to spot gaps, weaknesses. Um, and, and this involves machine learning and other techniques. We basically flag up where we may need to make improvements. Um, and then there's always a doctor in the loop basically making those improvements. So we don't want to risk biasing the system by sort of automatically learning against incorrect diagnoses and, and biased data. So it's kind of a machine man, a machine expert collaboration in continuing to refine this knowledge base. And uh, what uh, geographic markets uh, are you covering right now and uh, which are the most active? Yeah. Yeah, so we're available all over the world. Uh, I think it's 130 plus countries uh, where there are app stores and, and, and Google Play Store and so forth. Um, we especially have users in uh, markets where we, we cover the language, as you would expect. So we started off only in English. So we initially had a lot of users in the USA, the UK, India. Um, uh, and uh, we then expanded to German and, 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 uh, and built up a large user base in Germany. Re more recently, um, Spanish, Portuguese and French. So we're starting to see more users in those parts of the world as well. Interesting. So how long would it take you to add a new language to the system? Um, it's it's getting quicker and quicker, you know, with anything in a startup, you sort of develop more automated um, and uh, streamlined processes for doing this. So at first it took months and now it's, um, it's, it, it's shortening all the time as we learn how to do this in a really scalable way. Yeah, I did some real quick reading before the interview and I saw uh, one thing associated with uh, Ada Health was the Global Health Initiative. What is it? What is it you're doing? Mm. So um, we see a massive opportunity um, to have a very big impact for people in parts of the world where there's no or extremely limited access to essential health care. Um, it, it, it's, it's quite shocking, but even today... Um, the World Health Organization estimates that around half the world's population lacks access to essential health services when they need them. As you know, uh, smartphone penetration is going up all the time. Uh, even people in parts of sort of rural Africa uh, may now have, you know, with no access to a doctor, may have access to a smartphone. Um, uh, so we see a huge opportunity to reach those people and deliver world-class medical expertise and guidance Um, that simply wouldn't otherwise be available to them. Um, so uh, as well as our sort of commercial partnerships in US, Germany, um, uh, UK, other parts of the world, uh, we've decided to partner with some nonprofits um, to really uh, be able to focus on localization um, and, and reaching people in parts of the world we might not otherwise focus on initially as a startup with limited resources. So um, our, our first partnerships as part of this global health initiative um, are focused on uh, Africa. 
um, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, and, a lot, and, a, and a Swiss foundation called the Botner Foundation. Botner Foundation. Um, the Botner Foundation are focused on um, child and adolescent health um, and, and, and family health. Um, and so we have some really exciting projects uh, there with those two partners initially. Um, uh, more to you know, sort of more to be announced about that soon. But but it, it's about driving access basically to people in those parts of the world. So in the email conversation uh, before this interview, one of the things uh, I noticed uh, among the topics uh, that uh, <coughs> we were uh, pre-discussing is that uh, more and more doctors, uh, uh, as you say, making the switch from medicine to tech. Is that something you see and why do you think it is like this? Uh, I do see it. Um, I think luckily still the majority of uh, doctors want to remain practicing clinicians because we do need practicing clinicians. There's a massive shortage globally. Um, but yes, absolutely, there's an increasing interest in either moving over to tech or combining, you know, sort of clinical practice with 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 working in in health tech. Um, I think there's a couple of uh, very clear reasons for that. So one is that there's a growing need. Um, there's a, a huge, um, uh, I guess. It's pretty clear that health systems all around the world are very strained, you know, significant um, increases in costs due to a combination of an aging population and greater needs, but also uh, more technology and an ability to sort of deliver better care and more expensive care. You know, so the, the, there's, there's these pressures that's making healthcare unsustainably expensive um, and, and a real belief that... Um, uh, digital technology and AI can really drive down those costs. Um, I think the other reason is that we're, we're sort of democratizing the ability to start a company. You know, these new technologies also make it easier um, to try and build a solution. So if doctors are on the front line seeing these problems, uh, it's easier than ever to actually have a go at um, you know, building a solution or partnering up with others. Um, to do so. So I think there's a couple of reasons um, why, why we're seeing more of that and we'll continue to see more doctorpreneurs. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice word. Right. So and uh, then the next question comes uh, straight after this. Uh, what's the competition like? Is the market close to saturation uh, with all the doctors uh, uh, becoming entrepreneurs? Uh, I don't think it is at all. It's still very, very early days um, in the world of digital health. Uh, there's so much need. There's therefore so much opportunity. Um, and uh, the technologies we've been talking about, mobile, uh, AI, um, it, it, it's really going to drive massive transformation across the health industry globally um, over the coming years and decades. But we're really, I, I feel we're still... Uh, at the beginning of that sort of curve, you know, we're, we're, we're still very early. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity for anyone who wants to get into this space. So what sort of competition are you seeing then? There are similar apps on the market, right? Yeah, there are some other apps, um, companies working um, on similar problems. Uh, it, access to healthcare, um, being able to navigate appropriately, um, routing people to the right care, driving efficiencies, earlier diagnosis, etc. These are massive needs globally. So, of course, others are, um, are working in the space. Um, we've been working on this for a long time, long before AI became a really sort of hot topic and, and, and very hyped. Um, and, and it does mean that we've built up um, very significant expertise in the space. We've refined um, our our core technology, our reasoning capabilities over several years. We started with, with clinicians. So if you work hard to develop something that's good enough to support very experienced doctors, um, you can imagine that then uh, you, you, you have a head start uh, when it comes to translating it to the patient in being able to sort of offer something of significant quality. So we're very confident about that. Um, uh, but yeah, for sure, there's a huge opportunity and others, will, uh, 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 others are looking at it as well. So, uh, the customers, uh, the other startups, uh, and the other part of the triangle, I guess, is the regulators. So, how do you think uh, the regulators are catching up with everything that's going on with health tech right now, in, both in Europe and in the US and elsewhere? Yeah, this is, um, it, it, it's always the case that regulators um, tend to 
struggle to keep up with uh, new technologies and innovation, you know, so there's a, there's a kind of lag period. Um, uh, and it's definitely the case in health tech and AI in particular um, in healthcare. Uh, of course, uh, regulators, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of um, discussion now in this space about how regulations may need to adapt. Um, I do believe that we need more open dialogue between the regulators and uh, health tech companies uh, to work together in a very proactive way um, to map out those changes. Um, and so, so the companies can be proactively um, working towards complying with new regulations as opposed to them sort of coming into force without any kind of warnings. I think there's a, um, and, and, and to enable the regulators to understand how to do that effectively, you know, keep uh, focus on patient safety um, at the same time as enabling innovation. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in, in better dialogue between the innovators and the regulators in making this work sort of better, better looking, looking ahead. Do you as a company experience uh, any struggles, issues, barriers entering certain markets because of regulation? You know, of course, healthcare is a highly regulated industry as it should be. Um, so it does mean that you can't, it's not quite the same mantra as the sort of move fast and break things uh, of the, the classic sort of, you know, consumer tech industry. But I think that's right. Uh, it does mean that you... Uh, it, it can take a little bit longer uh, to achieve certain milestones. Um, you need to spend more time validating the technology, um, creating evidence, um, complying with regulations. Uh, you, you just have to take that into account when building a company in this space and, um, and, and really work towards that. I think one of the biggest frustrations probably in this space is uh, the lack of data interoperability and data sharing and patients not having good access most of the time to their own data and the ability to share that with um, with others as they as as they choose to benefit them and to benefit others. So I think that's uh, an area where we 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 need to do a lot more, a lot more. Work. Is this something you're working on? Uh, well, as an industry, we really need to do a lot of a, a lot of work on this. So. Um, we uh we basically um believe very strongly uh, that the individual should own their data and have access to it and be able to control who has access to that data and share with share it with people as they choose um of course we have an app that goes direct to the consumer and people share data with us um uh Uh, with the full knowledge of how we use, you know, how how we will use that data, that we keep it secure, we never ever share with third parties uh, without the explicit um, consent, in fact, request of the of the patient. So you know, we 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 only share with the doctor if a patient asks to share it with share it, that data with the the doctor. Um, but I think we need to work um, as an industry, and um, uh, I'm certainly very interested in working. Uh, increasingly with others in the industry on this sort of data interoperability challenge that we all have. Right. So you're going to be on stage uh, today and you already have been. So what is it uh, you're talking about here? Uh, so so later today I'll be talking about democratizing access to healthcare, why we need to do that um, and, and how we might do that. Right. And how are you uh, like in the conference so far? Is it your first time uh, on Slash, as you said before? So how has it been for you? Yeah, uh, amazing. I mean, it's a huge conference. Uh, so it's quite crazy in terms of the number of people and, and therefore the number of meetings and so forth. But I've had so many interesting conversations, you know. It's a great convergence of um, uh, people from across the tech world, investors, founders, um, uh, media, and, uh, and, and it leads to a lot of really really interesting conversations do you have any particular goal you want to achieve at the conference um, particular goal no it's just uh it's conversations meeting interesting people and 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 to some extent serendipity you don't know what you don't know who you yeah. quite who you're going to meet and at some of the dinners and, and and events and and what might come out of that it's always one of the sort of exciting unknowns about about a conference like this 
Thank you so much. This was it for my questions. Uh, this was Andrew Degler from Tech.eu recording at Slush 2018, uh, catching up with uh, uh, Claire Novorol from Ada Health. Uh, thanks a lot for being here and uh, good luck. Thanks very much. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, episode number 105. Let's move forward towards the other news uh, from last week. Uh, Natalie, what did you want to talk about today? Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk about Autotech as I've just returned from Mobility Pioneers in Munich, where I had a really great time talking all things transport with lots of different providers. It was a great conference. And I met some really exciting startups there and we had some cool discussions about new mobility and some of the challenges between mobility and the urban environment. Oftentimes, we've talked a lot on this program about uh, scooters, but most of the time we're coming back to cars and the future of cars and what this landscape is going to look like. Changing ownership models is one thing that we're really seeing a lot of innovation in this space. And the era of personal ownership for cars is something that's really changing very rapidly. It's also a good time to talk about this because we've had a few really big deals recently in Germany, Italy, and France, which take very different approaches to car ownership. So that's what I wanted to talk about. So the first of these deals goes to Cluno, a startup that's based in Munich, which just raised 25 million euros in Series B funding. Cluno is a really interesting company. It was founded in 2017, and they've already raised 34 million euros. Their app wasn't launched until the end of October and has only just recently been available on Android, but it's seen quite a bit of interest. So what Cluno offers is a digital car subscription. Users can book a car in three minutes in the app and get it delivered to their location for a short-term commitment. Six months is the minimum amount of time for a contract. And so right now their service is available across Germany, but they have plans to scale it further. The second of these deals comes from Milan. The startup Brum Brum just raised a 20 million uh, in a new funding round led by Excel. So Brum Brum operates a used car market across Italy and allows you to purchase cars directly online. Brum Brum actually buys the cars and maintains them and then puts them on the platform. The platform gives buyers a digital showcase of vehicles, allowing you to have a 360 degree view of the car online before you decide to purchase. And when you decide to purchase it, the car is delivered to a location of the buyer's choice. So you can take care of this entirely without going to a dealership. Similar to Cluno, Brum Brum also offers a subscription model, which they call Car as a Service, which offers a long-term rental solution with no advance payment. The other new investment is a 20 million euro round to Virtuo, a car rental startup that's based in Paris. So this was just announced. And these rentals are for flexible terms of varying duration. Virtuo is available in a number of locations in Belgium and in France. And with this new investment, they hope to bring their service to a number of locations in the UK, including my town of Edinburgh. So they let you book a Mercedes A-Class or GLA in minutes, according to the app. So while maybe I'm not the best customer for this, Virtuous says they have had already 500,000 downloads of their app. So if these companies kind of sound familiar to you, it's because there are really a lot of players in Europe offering different sorts of ownership models for personal vehicles right now. At Mobility Pioneers, one of the pitching startups was Trusted Cars, a platform for used vehicles from Frankfurt that has an offering that somewhat fits kind of between Cluno and Brum Brum, which lets people do subscriptions of used cars so that it takes them out of the used car lot um, and gives people another flexible ownership option. While it's exciting that there's a lot of growing offerings helping to facilitate new types of vehicle ownership, in some ways, I think customer awareness and behavior really has a ways to go. At Mobility Pioneers, I was speaking with Honors Well, the chief international officer of Green Mobility, a car sharing company in Denmark. He said a continual challenge they confront is first the awareness that these options exist. And secondly, there's a psychological one. People are just used to owning cars, even in really dense European cities when it can be quite inconvenient. While this is likely to change over time, people are so used to owning a personal car. So it's really up to companies like these to show and then prove that there are viable alternatives. As I'm doing more and more work in the mobility space, I will continue to follow how things like this evolve. 
Options like these are compelling contrasts to traditional auto sales platforms, which, to be fair, still attract a lot of money in Europe, especially even recently. So just last year, SoftBank's Vision Fund put 460 million euros into Berlin's Auto One Group, valuing the company at the time at 2.9 billion. Frontier Car Group, which started out pretty much as a direct clone of Auto One, is also based in Berlin, but they operate in emerging markets. They raised two huge rounds last year. The first 41 million US dollars in a Series B announced at the beginning of May, and then an 89 million US dollars at the end of May in a Series C led by the OLX Group. So I have a few other automotive-related events on my calendar this year, including something really exciting happening in Slovenia. So look forward to some more coverage on this space to come, something that I think we'll see a lot more uh, as this year goes on. And this sounds pretty cool. And I, I do have to say that well, from uh, from where I see it, it seems like all this uh, being used to owning a car, it's changing pretty rapidly as well. I see more and more people just uh, going for uh, these like uh, on-demand offerings, like a car to go, I know that works here in Amsterdam or green wheels or whatever it is. It's uh, it's also much easier to park these cars because I don't know about uh, uh, Germany or the UK, but uh, here we also have these special parking spaces that are always reserved to these uh, on-demand cars, and usually those are the only empty ones uh, when you uh, when you're looking for uh, for a parking space. Yeah, I think the UK will be a more difficult market for some of these types of car ownership schemes because car ownership is very ingrained in. Um, a lot of people's practices here and the cities are often not designed for having a lot of public transport options. So even though you have um, buses and trams, sometimes there is a, a lot of people live in kind of su suburban areas and Edinburgh especially is a really difficult city to, to live in if you don't have some of these alternative transport options. It's just it'd be very interesting to see how that works. There, there is a lot of people in this city that have cars that maybe shouldn't, um, based on how they're they're driving, uh, driving them and parking them often in the bus lane or the cycle lane. So people love their cars, and especially the big Range Rovers are one of the most popular ones here. I hope that that these alternatives come come here soon, but it will be, I think, an uphill battle in some ways. Well, I mean, look at yourself. You come from a very car-centric country, that's the US, and you're living in a car-centric country, that's the UK, and you still don't uh, own a car. That's not true. <laughs> we do have a car oh. so that it takes us outside the city on the weekend because that's where I want to spend most of my time when I'm not working. So we do have a car. I also have a car in the US that I'm obviously not driving now. But it was interesting at the conference, just speaking with some of the other panelists, and I was asking them if they had cars, and almost everyone did. And it kind of goes back something the columnist at the Wall Street Journal, um, Christopher Mims, who writes very often about mobility, um, he, he kind of said sneakily on Twitter about, you know, even though I know we probably shouldn't be owning cars anymore, there's just some, there's this, this joy of driving that is really hard to replicate with even electric solutions or kind of shared solutions. And I think in the UK, especially, it speaks to the, the great love of programs like Top Gear and the Grand Tour. Um, everything motoring is something that, that is very cherished here. Um, so it, it will, especially convertible cars. It will be it be tough to change. Yeah, the, there is that Range Rover model that is a convertible Range Rover um, that is very popular here. The Evoque um, is something that um, people really really seem to appreciate. But I think it will change over time. It's just a matter of how fast. Okay. Yeah, let's keep our eyes peeled. And uh, I hope that you will bring something interesting from the next uh, automotive events that you're going to. Maybe there will be some numbers of whether the number of uh, car owners increase or decline over the years. Maybe it's too early to look uh, at them, of course, but it still, it still might be something interesting. Okay, so speaking of events and uh, the future, what uh, should we be looking forward to 
uh, within the next few weeks. Yeah, so of course, everyone on the TechEU team is very much looking forward to Tech Chill, which is happening in Riga, Latvia on February 21st and 22nd. We will be taping a version of the podcast with the whole team. So look out for that when that comes out in two weeks. Then on the 24th of February, please join us in Barcelona for Mobile Sunday. And then on 20, February 25th, the four years from now and Mobile World Congress gets kicked off in Barcelona. So have a look at our website for all the details on those. Then on February 26th to the 27th, the Super Venture Conference returns to Berlin with two days of networking and insight focused on the venture capital industry. You can head over to our website for a special 10% discount if you're interested in that event. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, please let us know at the link in your show notes or send us an email. Cool. Yeah, I am very much looking forward to uh, to Tech Chill <clears throat> next week. It's going to be really interesting. It's also always a pleasure to see the people I work daily alongside uh, in person. That doesn't happen too often for a tech.eu uh, team, I have to say. Yeah. Not often enough. Maybe we should uh, get some, uh, I don't know, some audience for our podcast taping uh, next that week. That would be great. I think that we might be able to arrange we should, that. We should include yeah. this into the, into the agenda. That would be great. So yeah, if you're listening to this and you want to uh, participate in the recording next week, and if you happen to be at Tech Chill, it should be Friday before noon, right? Yeah, Friday yeah, sandwich between me and Robin's panels will be taping the podcast. Yeah, and I'm going to be free because my panel is on a Thursday, so I will just do it whenever you two have time. Now, let's move on towards the recommendation section. Uh, I will start this time, and my recommendation for the week is a pretty brief one. Uh, it's a post and a slide deck by Mark Suster, an American VC and entrepreneur. The post is titled a deep dive into what has really changed in venture capital and it's a really it's a really interesting one it uh, i would do really recommend to read it through and also look at the slide deck it's a long one but it's pretty cool so what is it in general? It's a look at how venture capital has evolved over the years and how to assess uh, the VC funding numbers in context. Uh, we're talking about uh, the US VC funding uh, numbers right now, but uh, it's generally an interesting exercise uh, to do. So last year, uh, the amount of money raised by VC in the US reached 55 billion US dollars. And this happened for the first time since the dot-com crash in 2000. Uh, the amount of money invested uh, by the VCs in the US also increased significantly a few times in, in a few years. Uh, but it turns out that the bulk of this growth accounts for the mega rounds or of more than uh, 100 million US dollars. And those, uh, as Soster puts it, are just uh, not exactly venture rounds, but more like private IPOs. And uh, basically, the Growth in these ones has created a sort of a tectonic shift in how the VC market and VC landscape uh, works uh, works these days. So in the post, he makes uh, really interesting conclusions, uh, a bunch of them uh, from these numbers. Uh, I would just suggest you to go and check it out. I will put the link uh, to this uh, piece in the show notes. Uh, Natalie, uh, what is it you wanted to recommend? Yeah, so I have uh, two kind of related posts here that I kind of connected with the title, You Can't Quit Technology When It Comes For You Before You're Born. So the kind of theme that I'm talking about here explores how embedded technology, especially the big four or five main platforms, depending on how you count them, kind of really how integral they've become in our lives. So first is a piece in Wired by James Temperton, a UK-based tech journalist. His piece is titled, The Internet Hates Secrets, or I Tried to Keep My Unborn Child's Secret from Facebook and Google. In the piece, he describes the difficulty he and his partner had in trying to keep the news of their upcoming baby off of these platforms and the impact of how search queries can lead to tracking software for ads, how they can follow you around the internet, and how these platforms can know some of the most intimate aspects of our lives. He also brings up in the piece a number of kind of case studies that happened to other people. Um, 
when this information did get out. Um, for example, when someone had a miscarriage and they were being followed around on the internet by ads for breast pumps and things and kind of how damaging that can be. So the second piece on this theme is by Kashmir Hill writing in Gizmodo. And it's a several part series called Life Without the Tech Giants. So she did a six week experiment where she cut out Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple using a bespoke private VPN and a few other tools that really would prevent her from using any of these company's services. So before you think that this is a completely impossible task, she cut out one of these services uh, or companies from her life uh, for a week um, and looked at all of them. But it might be a very different experiment if you cut them all out at the same time. But her reflections were, and also alongside James's, um, were very enlightening. And especially when you put these next to one another. So in many of discussions about how tech is becoming so invasive, there's, there's this common refrain that, well, if you don't like the surveillance or you don't like the intrusion of these companies in your life, you can just use an alternative. But these two journalists really made strong, concerted efforts to use alternatives or to try to get off these platforms altogether. And what they found and kind of the conclusion of these stories is that you just can't do it. So, so much of the infrastructure of the web has become bound up in these services developed by these providers to the extent that in many ways is unavoidable. You can't really participate in modern life without having these services be a part of it. So you might wonder, okay, well, what's the point and why are we even talking about this? And maybe I'm thinking about these things too much, but I think it's important to continue to question this new status quo. And it's important to consider questioning if this is the experience that we want on the web. And are we at this point now that we are having relationships with companies that we didn't really originally intend to? Well, not in this way. And especially considering we can't really get away from. Do we just accept this and move on? Or if we decide that we don't want to accept this, who is there to protect us and what really can be done? So there really isn't an answer to this question. And that I kind of find really unsatisfying. So that's just some further food for thought. I think it's an interesting question to ponder. And I'll continue to do that. <laughs> Hopefully not again in the, in the podcast, but it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Yeah, of the two of us, you're definitely the more conscious uh, person in terms of the dependence that we have developed uh, uh, over time uh, from the bigger corporations and the internet platforms and so on. With this particular uh, article, by the way, I haven't finished it, uh, but I also uh, started reading it today and I only read the Amazon part. And I'm not sure that it is the right approach uh, that, uh, that they decided to take of basically mixing together Amazon and Amazon Web Services because Amazon Web Services does not really track you if this is something you want to avoid. It's just, it's an infrastructure play. It's uh, it's not something that will show you ads or something like that. So it does show an interesting thing about the ownership of uh, this infrastructure uh, on one side, but on the other side, like when we talk about stop using these uh, services if you don't want to be tracked, we don't necessarily mean stuff like Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure or uh, Amazon Web Services for that matter. So it's a bit, it might be apples and oranges, but I'm not really sure whether uh, whether I'm right on this. So, and I think that's a fair critique and it's something that she develops further in, in the investment of this experiment. Um, but it kind of goes back to really underlining how expansive these companies have been and have grown. And kind of if you get to the point where, you know, you look at ownership and you consider, well, maybe I would like an alternative. I don't necessarily want to be contributing to the pocket of the world's richest man, for example. You don't really have an alternative to opt out of that. Um, and what does that say about our experience online? It shouldn't be kind of in the hands of, or maybe it should be, or maybe we're fine with that. It's just an interesting um, experiment and, and thought to ponder. So I think that's why she's she's connected them both in that experiment, but certainly a fair critique. Yeah, for sure. And also what I also noticed, by the way, just an interesting thing also about Amazon, because I haven't read anything else yet, uh, is that 
it's just so different in the U.S. It appears to be a, a bit different in the U.S. than it is uh, in Europe. Uh, and I think we have it better in the in terms of uh, this kind of thing because i do not feel as dependent on let's say amazon for my shopping for example i do buy a bunch of uh, uh, things there but like if it weren't there uh, tomorrow i can't say i would be really like um, left without options or something like that and also echo and all that i don't really use it i don't care that much and the, and she had uh, issues well, well, you every week you do encourage everyone to download the podcast on iTunes. So that is... no iTunes, yes. So I, I'm talking mostly about Amazon right now. So I mean, uh, well, that's what I'm saying. That I do use it, but not as much as apparently uh, an average American person would. Like I don't buy my kitchen towels on Amazon, <laughs> for example. And apparently you do uh, you do that if you live in the U.S. because it's just the more most convenient option. Yeah, and and you have more room, and it also saves you from getting in your car to drive more. <laughs> Speaking of cars now, and I mean about uh, podcasts and Apple. That's uh, that's totally another discussion, but it's a very timely one, by the way, since uh, Spotify just uh, bought uh, uh, Anchor and Gimlet. Uh, but yeah, Apple has been controlling pretty much uh, uh, podcasts for a long time. It was the biggest, uh, well, it is still the biggest uh, platform where uh, people listen to podcasts, but it has not been doing a thing about uh, this uh, position uh, for, for for all these years. And it's uh, still an open question whether it's going to uh, do anything at all or whether we are all going to switch to Spotify one way or the other. I checked Spotify just uh, the other day and it's horrible. The podcast experience in Spotify is so bad that it's really hard to imagine just because it's just the same as with uh, music. Music is great for music. It's awful for, for podcasts. I just come to my list of subscriptions and what I see is just basically the list of podcasts, the list of show names, not the list of episodes coming in a feed that I can just listen one after the other as I'm used to. So it definitely has to change and I guess it will change at some point. But right now, I wouldn't recommend switching. If anyone from Spotify is listening to this, um, I do hope Andre's concerns are noted, especially considering this new acquisitions for them. No, I mean, even though I am generally also against this like big monopolies and all, but I would generally be happy to have only one app on my phone that uh, gives me my music and my podcasts. And if it's Spotify... I don't really mind, especially since it's a European company and it's a European success and I'm very much uh, happy for them. Right. I guess this was uh, also a uh, part that was not really an agenda and we are, of course, uh, over time. This is it then for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Do not miss our new episodes. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Spotify or SoundCloud, another European success. Just look for tag.eu podcast and uh, you will find us easily. Please also leave us a review on your podcast app of choice if it allows it, which I think only iTunes does at the moment. This will help others uh, find our podcast and will mean a lot uh, for ourselves also tell one friend of yours about the podcast and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu and on facebook please feel free also to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie thanks so much for joining today and putting up with my uh, nonsense <laughs> by, by the end of the podcast no problem enjoy the rest of your week and i guess talk to you next wednesday bye Bye-bye.